forever. Dog. They write, they talk, and talk about what they write. Tune in time, time, tonight, or whenever the time is right. It's the Writer's Panel with Ben Blacker, and it's starting now. Oh, yeah. This is a great crowd. <laughs> they know how to treat you well. I'm going to ask you to go down the line and introduce yourselves. Tell us somewhere we may have seen your name on television and movies and magazines and in comic books, starting with you, Julie Benson. Uh, hello, I am Julie Benson. I am Shauna Benson. Uh, we wrote on the TV show The 100 uh, for three seasons. And um, we then went to Woo Assassins for Netflix, which will be coming out soon. I think Woo! some announcements yeah. will be coming Woo! soon. Woo! And uh, now we're... Can uh, we and say we're writing we're comics, wrote Batgirl and the Birds of Prey, Green Arrow, and we are, uh, we just this week started working on animated Star Trek series. <laughs> Scoop! Scoop! <laughs> yeah. Sarah. Um, I'm Sarah Kuhn. I write the Heroin Complex books, which is a series about Asian American superheroines, and I also write a bunch of comics. Um, I most recently am working on a story about another Batgirl, Cassandra Kane, who's the Asian Batgirl. Um, I'm doing a graphic novel for about her for DC Comics. Oh, Sarah. That's my Batgirl. Yeah, she's the best. Adam. My name is Adam Rogers. I'm an editor and a writer at Wired Magazine for Wired.com. Mostly science and a lot of miscellaneous geekery. Cocktails. (laughs) And also booze. Yeah, that too. Uh, and, and Adam is one of the bigger sci-fi fantasy uh, nerds that I know, so I really wanted him on this panel. Thank you. Uh, Chris. <laughs> uh, I'm Chris Dingus. I, uh, I've written on Agent Carter, Doom Patrol, Reaper, and I write a comic for Skybound called Manifest Destiny. I'm Jennifer Hutchison. Um, I worked on, thank you, I worked on uh, Breaking Bad, The Strain, Better Call Saul. Woo! That's it. How y'all doing? My name is, um, is that working? Uh, hey, it's, uh, my name is Derek Hughes. I'm a writer currently on Arrow, season eight, uh, co-executive producer. Uh, Before that, I was on a show called The Flash. I don't know if y'all heard about it. Uh, And uh, Warehouse 13, Beauty and the Beast, and some other fun stuff. I have two microphones. Uh, My name is Jose Molina. You may have seen me at an ICE detention center near you. Uh, I've also written... Too soon, man. Too soon, sorry. Um, I got two mics. It went to my head. Um, I have written for Firefly, Sleepy Hollow, also Agent Carter, uh, currently working on uh, Magic the Gathering and King Killer Chronicles and Blood and Treasure. It's been a really good year. And, and Derek and Jose are the other two biggest nerds I know, so I wanted them here. <laughs> I'm Kieran Gillen. I've written too many comics, just too many. Uh, a bunch for Marvel, like uh, Uncanny X-Men and Young Avengers and Thor and Iron Man and all that kind of stuff. Uh, Star Wars, uh, stuff like that. I do my own books like Die and The Wicked Divine uh, for Image. Terrific. Um, and if you're not reading Die, you should be reading Die. It, it may be the best comic out there right now. I'll say it. Thank you. <laughs> uh, 
Folks, I want to begin by asking you about uh, early influences. You know, you all either love or work in genre and or both. And uh, I'm curious to hear about the sort of big genre worlds that got you interested in this kind of storytelling. Um, and Karen, I'm going to start down at that end with you. Tell us what you encountered uh, uh, as a young child. <laughs> it's like, what's to blame? That's, that's the <laughs> yeah, question, isn't exactly. it? Uh, like Tolkien, uh, Ursula Le Guin, I was very into Earthsea. Um, so that's, that kind of, that's the more credible side. And the other side, I played a Let, lot of it. Can I ask? Um, at what age did you encounter Tolkien? When did you read those books? Like nine, ten. Okay. That is sort that of age. A and lot it's of like, you are not. It's like Le Guin is the interesting one in terms of like, like I hit Le Guin and instantly was reading uh, Tombs of Atuan, and that's instantly you saw. Like I, I wouldn't recognise it as a feminist filter then, but I saw that kind of oh no, this is different, and this is kind of different to the, the stories I'm getting elsewhere. So that kind of stuff was always the, the stuff that really inspired me. Mm -hmm. And then there's like the, the more trashy game side. I was an enormous Warhammer 40k player, you know, <laughs> that kind of stuff as well. So I kind of merged those two things and brought yeah. it together, really. Interesting. Jose? Um, in terms of worlds, uh, the, the world that had easily the most influence on me uh, growing up was the world of Greyhawk, um, which... Some people recognize, for those of you that don't, uh, it's the world, it's the fantasy setting that Dungeons and Dragons uh, was set in uh, in the early 80s, uh, and I picked up D&D in 82 when I was but a wee wee lad, uh, and a lad weeing in my pants probably, um, uh, and uh, that sort of opened the door for uh, me to begin writing. Uh, you know, I was... Uh, 10, 11, 12 year old kid uh, growing up in Puerto Rico where we didn't have uh, comic book shops or hobby shops so there was no place for me to buy modules uh, so I once I discovered D&D in the form of the red box um, if I wanted to, to be able to play with my friends I had to write my own adventures and so I started writing because of D&D Cool um Jose, let me, let me ask you, I'm curious to hear, uh, because I, I never played D&D. It's a very foreign thing to me. Like, how, what drew you to it in the first place? I mean, the honest truth is I was a 10-year-old walking through KB Hobby Shop in St. Louis, and I saw a box with a red dragon and a guy with a flaming sword, and I'm like, I want that. I, didn't, I, didn't, I literally had no idea yeah. that it was a game. I just saw that it was a box that had like one of the coolest images I had seen. There's something primal about it, too. Totally, yeah. And you know, as, as a smaller kid, I was like into Arthurian mythos and, and all that uh, kind of jazz. Um, so I was primed for it, um, and then you open the box, and it's this thing that isn't just, uh, hey, read this passively and absorb it. It's read this, mm -hmm. share it with your friends, be it, live it, role play it. Um, and you know, I, I just had teenagers visiting uh, me in LA from Philadelphia, and they'd never played, but because of Stranger Things, they wanted to play. <laughs> and after the first night, they were addicted like they were on crack because it's not you know and they play a lot of video games so they know sort of the the tropes and they know the some of the monsters and they know the general rules but this thing where you sit around a table with your friends and you're talking to the DM like he's another person and you're a person and the encounter can go in a million directions instead of like the four options that a Skyrim for instance gives you 
it's it, you can't get enough because there is literally no ending to what the game can be. So just that bottomless pool, I think, was a big part of what drew me. That's, cool. That's great, uh, Derek. What was your stuff when you were a kid? Very similar to Jose, but I have to tell, I have to say one thing. It's like it's very important to have a good DM because my first exposure was to a bad DM. He was a stoner, <laughs> and and he was looking for just a reason to get rid of his D and D modules. So he gave them to me, but he didn't explain anything about them. And I was already heavily into comic books, anime, because being half Japanese, growing up on animation and I mean anime and uh, manga, as well as you know uh, Marvel and DC Comics and Tolkien. It all you know basically the whole throw it everything in the washing machine, right? And call, and mix it all up. Uh, but when I got my first D&D module, very much like Jose, I remember seeing the player's handbook and, you know, it was like the statue with the thief, you know, prying out the gem out of the eye. And I was like, <laughs> oh my God, this is great. And then he was like, oh, it's really easy to play. You know, he's like a surfer stoner dude. You know, the, I mean, the weird thing was this is in the Philippines, okay? So it was like, <laughs> it was like, uh, but he never really explained the rules. So when I got it, I thought it was just going to be really easy. And then when I tried to explain to my friends, they were like, this is like homework. <laughs> and so a lot of it was just me just making you know, stuff up because oh. it was like I wasn't following the modules because, yeah, because I started looking at it like homework, all the different maps. So I just started <laughs> making up my own maps and my own little stories. And then, you know, and it was just sort of that storytelling bug. But not really, really, you know, following the rules, just making stuff up. That's really cool. Of drawing mazes, you know, it was all about the dungeon and mazes with the traps. <laughs> I'd spend hours drawing traps just to kill my friends. But not, you know, not thinking about the purpose of it. It's supposed to be going on a quest, not to kill, you know. It was like the Saw version of Dungeons yeah. & Dragons. So, yeah, so that's, that, was, that was pretty much my exposure to it. And you're still kind of doing that in TV. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So what can I do to this protagonist? It was a big part. Yes. Um, Jenny, what, what was the stuff you were into as a kid? Um, well, I think sort of the first thing that really, as a little kid, was the Narnia Chronicles. Mm -hmm. um, I just got really into those. And then my mom is a huge sci-fi fan. And so she, she took a sci-fi elective course in college. And she had to take me to school <laughs> with her. I was like seven or eight. Uh, and we would just watch movies. So we watched like... Forbidden Planet, and oh we'd watch Star Trek and Twilight Zone, and so that sort of fed in, and wow. then as I got older, it was stuff like Dune and the Dark Tower series, and it just sort of like built from there. That's wild. That's really yeah. neat. Yeah, it's like, wow, that's a pretty good origin story, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Chris? Uh, I was the youngest of four kids, so I watched whatever the older kids watched, <laughs> and I was a really little kid, and I saw... Um, John Borman's Excalibur. Mm -hmm. And that blew my mind because it was insanely violent but also very pretty and lots of graphic sex in it. And I was like, this is an amazing world to play in. I think being too young when you see Excalibur is a real prime, because I have that too. Yeah. Like if you, not just Excalibur, but being like two years too young to have been, to like why did my parents take me to that? <laughs> yes. But it's really significant. Um, yeah. Especially like, because I was thinking, one of mine is Arthurian stuff, but I, but I think especially like Arthur through Miss of Avalon and Excalibur. Mm -hmm. Like those two, kind of those two ways to tell it. Um, and Pern and Earthsea, and my first memory of television is Star Trek. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so that's pretty huge. And a ton of comic books that my dad used to just throw down in front of me when he'd come back when there used to be magazine stands and there used to be comic <laughs> books sold on them. That was a thing you could do incidentally. Yeah, um, absolutely. You could just pick them up and it didn't matter what they were. Yeah, they like were the casual spinner stories. rack comics, not yeah. you know comic book store comics. Um, and that, I really do think that that sort of being three years old and looking at the menagerie, that's the episode mm-hmm. of Star Trek that it was, being like, well, that's that's it right there. If I can professionalize that, I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's something eye-opening about seeing that other world. Uh, Sarah, what was it for you? Um, I was thinking about a couple things. Um, one was uh, Pern, and McCaffrey's Pern books, which is kind of this uh, very vast, sprawling universe where um, humans are bonded to dragons. And it was kind of a similar thing to what Jose said about seeing the cool picture on the box, because I just remember, like, the especially the old Pern covers are that super old school, like, 70s sci-fi paintings um, where everybody's wearing, like, a bikini or, like, um, or, like, a slip. Like, there are a lot of action fantasy heroines who just like to wear slips, I guess. Um, but um, it's always, like, a woman who's riding a big, awesome dragon who's breathing fire, and that was really appealing. Um, and and what I really liked about that world in particular is um, it presents as a very classic fantasy world, but it actually has a science fiction basis because the dragons have a science, science fiction background. They're genetically engineered. There's like a whole, like several books that talks about that at great length. Um, but yeah, those were awesome. And then um, the other thing I was going to say was uh, something I've talked about a lot, which is the Hong Kong action movie, The Heroic Trio. Oh, that's um, so good. Which is like <laughs> these three badass women being superheroes. And in that case, it's sort of the opposite. Nothing is explained. It's just really ridiculous. Like at the end, there's a fight with like a dismembered skeleton. Um, not explained, just happens. Um, and the the sort of bad guy's ultimate plan, which I was always fascinated by it because it's so terrible. He just wants to, he kidnaps like every baby in China because he wants to transfer his consciousness into one of their bodies and he want his ultimate goal is to just rule China and I was like that's all I mean China is a very big country but I just thought as a evil overlord he could have like greater ambitions <laughs> <laughs> um, you know it's funny because to me the the fantasy world that had the biggest impact on me as a kid is probably the first movie I saw in a theater, which was Star Wars. Mm -hmm. And I mean, the Star Wars universe is really a fantasy universe. I mean, there is a, it's the reverse of what you were saying. It has a little bit of a sci-fi, it looks like sci-fi, but it has a fantasy basis to it. I mean, it has rules of magic of its own. Mm -hmm. Um, So I would say that is highly influential, definitely Star Trek. Um, definitely, uh, I, I was really passionate about um, Terry Pratchett's Discworld novels. That is, to me, one of the richest, greatest inventions. And, of course, a lot of it is playing on tropes that exist in other fiction. But it's just so good. So that's kind of my influence. Yeah, I did anything that she did. Older <laughs> sister, you're like, I'll read those books that are just on her floor. And then she was getting a lot of like Dune and Hobbit and those things from our dad, who was super into like, what was it like, Cat Who Walks Through Walls and all those, you know, crazy Stranger in a Strange Land books and all that stuff. 
But I think, like, does Doctor Who count as magic in the sense of sci-fi? Because that was really the show we grew up on. That was, our dad would, PBS at night would show old Fourth Doctor episodes, and so that was my doctor. And then you start to realize, oh, he turns into other people. This is the guy keeps going. And it, that, to me, was the greatest thing in the entire universe. And we used to write plays uh, and perform them in our friend's basement and set up the camcorder and we made little doctor. No will ever see. You will never <laughs> see these. Why? The special effects were probably just as good. Actually, bring up the... Uh, <laughs> they were better. <laughs> and uh, that was our fanfic as we would just yeah. record and write these things. So it was so inspiring for us. Uh, that's, that's, really, that's really cool. I, I will say, and, and I'm a little surprised that none of you mentioned it, but maybe for you all this is the case. Um, I was a monster kid. Mm. And like I, I watched Creature Double Feature, uh, which was on uh, uh, WLVI in Boston uh, with my dad. And um, to me, part of the appeal of monsters was the rules. It was, you know, to kill a vampire, you use a stake. He can't go out in the daytime. Uh, Gremlins, to me, in 1984, was an enormous uh, lightning bolt. Right? There were, it was so elegantly laid out. These are the rules of these monsters. And if you break these rules, the movie happens. Um, <laughs> in sci-fi and fantasy, I think sci-fi maybe to a lesser extent. You know, it's, we, we've, we talk about the difference between Star Wars and Star Trek. Right? If you watch Star Trek, you get a lot of rules. If you watch Star Wars, you get fuzzier rules. <laughs> and that tends to be a more fantasy-based thing. But I was thinking about something you said, Sarah, which is... Uh, in, in the books in which the dragons are yes. genetically engineered, there is a whole backstory given to these, yeah. and there is a reason given to these. As a reader, um, were you excited to learn the rules of this world, which didn't exist in that first chapter, or did it feel like an overcrowding of that world? Um, no, I was excited. I think because, um, especially at the age I was reading those books, which was probably like 10 or 12 is like kind of when you get into them, I was so obsessed with knowing every single thing about everything that I love. <laughs> so like, you know, like um, with, yeah. I feel like with the big blockbusters in the 80s and 90s, they used to do like those trading cards mm -hmm. where they would explain like, a lot of times they had been um, approved before the movie came out, so they would have like extra stuff. And so I was like fascinated with stuff like that. So getting that explanation eventually for sort of like how humans came to this planet, how the dragons started, what the differences are between all the different dragons, and then there's fire lizards, which are smaller, um, was actually super fascinating. I, I think as a reader now, I've changed a little bit. I actually prefer maybe a bit of mystery, maybe mm -hmm. more along the lines of the kind of fuzzy Star Wars rules. But I always enjoy that sort of minutia that I think all geeks enjoy, which is like learning how something works. Mm -hmm. um, I want to open this to questions before I get to my questions. So take this opportunity, if you do have questions for our panel, to line up at that microphone, please. And I'll get to you in one moment, but please do that now. Um, Derek, I want to come back to you and talk about this making up of the stories uh, to lead your friends through Dungeons and Dragons. <laughs> and I'm curious about, like, as a kid doing that, were you imposing rules on the storytelling, or was it just a just wild anything goes fantasy? No, it was my rules. <laughs> I mean, that, that was the whole point. It was like, but I didn't, it was more, again, of not 
really grasping structure per se, you know, <laughs> but understanding that there should be rules in place, but the rules were for everybody to die. <laughs> that, you know, it was just, that was it. Just it like, like life. It, it did, yeah, I didn't see, you know, I didn't see Plastad. It wasn't like a, you know, a seven point plan. It was just the, the end game was like, you're going to die. And so... <laughs> Because it was like I never, because they never stuck around long enough to play, oh. and it was and it was much more of an abusive relationship because they they kind of expected like, well, I need you to go down to that dungeon. It's like, but we know we're gonna die, so can we go play basketball or something like that? You know, it was it was that. So it, it was, but um, in in actually, you know, be, spending more time again because I was also like an artist. I mean, I, you know, I used to like love drawing. So I got really into drawing the monsters and, you know, Absolutely. spending time on the, the craft that way. Yeah, world building. That's but cool. again, the end point was for them all to die. <laughs> <laughs> um, Kieran, I want to move over to you now. Uh, you have, with Die, uh, you've created a sort of Dungeons and Dragons-like game, but you've also created the game. Yes. <laughs> it was like, you, it's you've been the, steeped in this stuff. Like, I've just gone too deep. It's <laughs> like, um, you know, the whole kind of the idea that... It's weird. I used to be an, not anti-Tolkien, but like I had a sort of teenage rebellion against Tolkien, as in you're not my real dad, you know. And <laughs> yeah. I've, I've only recently kind of got over it and started to accept him as a human being. Um, but like the whole idea of Tolkien, kind of Middle Earth is an epiphenomenon of him wanting to write languages, and the only reason like languages come from places, so I have to make a place so my languages make sense. And Dies ended up being a bit like that. In other words, to think about this world I've created with Stephanie, I've got to make the game because the. It, Basically, Gothjumanji is the two-word picture. <laughs> you know, like, it's a, it's a really, really bleak sort of people get trapped in a fantasy world sort of story. Yeah. Um, and so, like I say, I've got to make the game and work. And, of course, the game is actually structured about how people can go at home and actually have their own version of Die. In other words, this is how you create... It, I end up sort of, like, mechanising my narrative rules. Mm -hmm. And that has ended up, like, thinking about the concepts in Die a lot. So, in other words... I'm using it as a device to sort of think about it from every angle. So it's really useful for me as a writer. There's like major plot beats that came from me thinking about the game. I mean, like, oh no, this works back into it. Right. And there was definitely times I was like, okay, which is the dog, which is the tail? And now the kind of a uh, dog is at, at the tail. It's an Ouroboros and exists. Uh, did, did you, as you went along, find yourself, you know, working on one or the other and realizing an aspect didn't work for the other? Exactly. And, but yes, but also there's kind of bits where, oh, I need, you know, to get the narrative structure working for everybody. Because mm -hmm. that's like there's... There's a kind of punk rock aspect, I think, to D&D, &D, as in, you know, you do it yourself. Mm -hmm. You can get a band together and, you know, we can do it right here, right now, and, you know, kill my friends. Uh, <laughs> uh, so trying to work out how to take what makes Die the comic interesting and turn it into a game did involve me having to invent stuff in, like, and, and tweak stuff. And a lot of it's... The game is still an adaptation. It feels like, okay, these are the, the archetypes. And, you know, and this is, I'm sure we're going to talk about this, but there's a difference between literary magic and ludic magic. As in, um, the pure game system has to work in one way, whilst, of course, in literature, you have softer edges because it's literature. You know, mm -hmm. this is not what... It, people talk about in superhero comics. It's like, who's stronger? Who, you know, but Spider-Man will always defeat Galactus. Yeah, despite the fact Galactus clearly should win. You know, no, Spider-Man's a hero. That's also a, a kind of magic. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, well, why don't we take a question and then we'll, we'll sort of use that as a jumping off point. Hello, thank you. When weaving magic into the worlds that you create, are there particular rules or parameters that you either love to break or that are taboo to break? I'll let anyone jump in on this. <laughs> 
Can I can I just amplify too as somebody who's not much of a creator of them, but who's read a lot yes, of them? Absolutely. There's a there's a thing about where the where, where the power comes from, right? Like part of it is mm -hmm. that, that like are you going to do a thing where there are limits? Mm -hmm. What what walls are you going to build around it, if any? Because the notion is if you don't have those walls, it's not as real some way, even though you know that you're making something not real. Is that the is that the play? Is that uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I think um, like uh, I. Like for all my talk about how I love you know reading all this minutia about rules, I am actually the worst at coming up with them. Um, so a lot of times uh, when I come up with the sort of fantasy scenarios in my books, I'm just thinking of something like in the heroic trio that's really ridiculous um, that would be fun to write. So I have things like demonic cupcakes and supernatural karaoke and actual literal bridezillas like stomping the waterfront like Godzilla. Um, and so I usually think of something like that, and then I have to think about how to make, make it make sense. Um, but now that I've written uh, three books in this world, there are sort of things that are established. The bad guys are demons. It sort of isn't like any other kind of creature. And actually, for the, um, for the next book in the series, the thing I had pitched, because again, I thought of something ridiculous I wanted to do, was um, I was like, I want to write a book in this series that's set at a haunted women's college that's based on the women's the haunted women's college <laughs> I attended. Um, so there will be ghosts. And my editor was kind of like, okay, well, there, you, there aren't ghosts in this world. Like, what you've set up as the threat mm -hmm. is demons. Mm -hmm. So you can have ghosts, but they have to be somehow powered by the magic system you've already set up. Mm -hmm. Like, it can't just be like, now there's this whole different magic system that makes ghosts. Um, you have to think about, like, how it makes sense with what you've already established. Um, and yeah. since I'm also terrible at remembering that, sometimes <laughs> I have to go back and read my own work. Or ask, just ask people on Twitter, does anyone remember yeah. um, <laughs> in this book what and actually, a lot of times, um, the readers remember better than I do. Yeah, fan wikis may be the best <laughs> yeah, thing. Yeah, I know. I need to get one of those. Um, I want to ask any of you who have worked in television, this is sort of um, in regards to what Sarah was talking about, that's a moving train. Uh, and you are often building the train even once it's left the station. Uh, and I'm curious to hear about things that have been set up um, by a pilot, which as a writer on a show, you are not necessarily involved with, that you then need to either justify uh, you know, episodes later, or if you want to build new cars on that train, find a way to tie them to that pilot or things that were established early on in the series. That's always, re that's always really fun. I mean, we did that on The 100 a lot. We didn't write on the first two seasons, but you were the writer's assistant on that. And so it's fun to like go back and find those Easter eggs and say, oh, the wait, is this going to be spoilers if I say this? No, oh, who cares? Uh, <laughs> you know, oh, the reason they call it Polis is because of a ship. Or, you know, like you find those little moments. Oh, spoiler. Sorry, sorry, sorry. <laughs> There's so many. <laughs> but, but how deep? Yeah. In are you when you Deep, yeah. find that stuff? Like, is that that season four, or season three? Yeah, I mean, I, I, some of it is. Uh, we worked on a, a show that didn't go to series. It was a pilot, and it, it, we actually it was incredibly challenging because sometimes you know two different you can have different paths to coming to a pilot, and some writers will just say, you know what, I'm going to write what I feel and go for it. Kitchen and sink. Kitchen sink. We're just going to do it. And then you have other people who are very meticulous and planned and well, if you know, must know how it all works before they write down the story. This was not that. It was the former. And so it was once you got to the series, 
it had to make sense, and we were doing backbends to try to make the rules of the pilot make sense mm-hmm. with the rest of the show. And, and, and so in general, I, I would say probably finding somewhere in the middle is probably wise when you start writing a show um, to think, think about those rules <laughs> or a book or anything. You know, to think about your rules, give yourself a little bit of wiggle room so you can amend those rules or adjust them down the line. But yeah. I think, you know, if you can kind of explain it, you know, in a layperson way to yourself, then you're probably okay. Yeah, I, I feel like that it comes back to the elegance of the Gremlins rules for me. It's these are the three hard and fast things. But anything else we can start to push out a little bit. Uh, Jenny and Chris, I wanted to ask both of you, um, both The Strain and Doom Patrol feel like shows in which anything could happen. (laughs) But they did work on a certain set of rules because the shows worked, I think. Um, What were conversations that went on in the writer's room uh, about how far you could bend the rules of these shows? Uh, You go first. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so for The Strain, which those were based on a series of novels. So the big conversations were like, what are we going to pull from the novels? Mm -hmm. Because the challenge in The Strain is in the novels, none of the vampires have mouths. They all communicate telepathically. And like the very first thing on the show is like, well, that's not going to work. Because (laughs) then you get that whole like weird whisper thing that happens where like people always talk psychically in whispers. I don't know why. Um, And that ended up turning into this thing where not only do they have mouths, they have these like insane, disgusting, like, yeah. phallic stingers. That, we, like, we remember the en- enormous yeah. posters here. Yes, <laughs> yes, so gross. Um, so it was just little things like that where it would be like, um, you know, oh, it's we based it on a real-world thing. The contagion was these little worms, and that's what the infection was based in. And then it was like, okay, but will that work for this? Because they're around a lot of worms, and we established that, like, it's really easy to get one, and then other times they're, like, surrounded by them. And so it was just sort of playing with those. And I think, speaking to, it was Shauna, right? Shauna's point Mm -hmm. about the threshold Mm -hmm. of rulemaking is um, really important because there's this thing that you say about time travel where, like, if you explain time travel too much, people start asking too many questions. If you don't explain it enough, people start asking questions. So you need sort of, like, Back to the Future is sort of that perfect balance of, like, I made a DeLorean, (laughs) I put a magic thing in it, and we can go backwards in time, and it needs uranium. And, like, that was it. And you're like, okay, cool, I believe that. But (laughs) if he had said, because, oh, sorry, because the, you know, flux capacitor does, blah, 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 then you would have been like, oh, wait, but then what about this? So you need that middle ground. Which is often a sequel problem, right? I'm not Back to the Future specifically, but in a lot of sequels, they try to explain more about the world, and it it takes you out of the world. Um, Chris, what was your experience on Doom Patrol? Uh, Well, with Doom Patrol, it was an adaptation, but a a lot of what we were adapting was Grant Morrison, who, (laughs) when it comes to rules... (laughs) It's a little fuzzy, and it, it can be fast and loose sometimes. And then also, but um, it, in, especially in regards to magic, he had created this character, because he wasn't allowed to use John Constantine, named Willoughby Kipling, who was a chaos magic. And that was a very interesting thing to look into, because it's sort of this thing about if you believe in, if you believe in a type of magic, mm-hmm. you can make anything magical, sort of like... Janis Joplin's dental floss and and stuff like that. It was magically charged items. Um, 
But then with that show, a lot of it is, I mean, we had rules because we wanted the characters to be relatable and realistic, even though they were, you know, a brain inside a robot body. But there was more than any other show I've ever worked on. There was a lot of stuff where there was a lot of stream of consciousness. And I think, I think it was because we'd all read a bunch of Grant Morrison preparing for this uh, show. A lot of just stream of consciousness ideas I felt were coming out and it's the type of thing you would, an idea you would let come and go, but on Doom Patrol you had a group of other people going, wait, back up, let's talk about that for a day or two or a week and then figure out a way to pay for it and put it on people's TV screens. But I thought, we, I thought this worked in Doom Patrol, but, it's, but the thing about Morrison is that he's explicitly dealing with the medium too. So much of yes. what he's talking about is how comic books work, right? So as soon right. as you try to do that on TV, that's gotta be much more of a challenge. We, it wasn't, it wasn't, we just sort of, um, I mean, I, I think Doom, I think, uh, I mean, Deadpool did it very well by breaking the fourth wall, mm-hmm. but we had our own, our villain, was also our storyteller, which made it, which really gave us an interesting access point uh, to sort of treat the medium the way Grant Morrison uh, treated comic books. Mm-hmm. And I think that's that's the right move too in that kind of thing, right? Is to translate it for the medium. It's not you're not yes. ca- talking about comic books. You're talking about television because you are a television show. All right, let's get to as many of these questions as we can. Shoot. This question is for Derek, actually. Um, it's about The Flash, and it really touches in on this point that you guys have been going on. The universe of The Flash, as time has gone on, has fractured and become less and less logical to the point that it's sort of anything goes. Thanks, Barry. <laughs> <laughs> I, but what it seems to me is that it focus, the show really focuses on the relationships of the people, and that whole universe is really a platform. I'm wondering just how intentional that is or what your thoughts are on that. That's very intentional. I mean, I would give, you know, the credit goes to um, Greg Berlanti and, and he wrote on the board in the, in the writer's room these three words, heart, humor, spectacle. Hmm. And it's like he, he stresses is like, with, you don't have heart, meaning the emotional journey and you care about these characters and this story doesn't matter. You can have the humor, you can have the spectacle, but if you don't have that heart, it doesn't matter. You can have one or two, but you, you cannot have none of them in there. And so we always start from that place of like, where's the emotional journey of our characters? And so for Barry Allen, Oliver Queen, you know, Felicity Smoke, it, it's like, we, you know, you, you start off with these characters and you're like, what is that emotional? And, and, and that is what's important. And then the story, you know, that will come second, but it has to, it has to serve the emotional you know, the core of it is, is the, the engine that drives it is the emotions. Yeah. So, And I think you can get away with a lot, right? You can have a big, even confusing world, uh, or you can throw someone into that world as long as you have an emotional core to it. Yeah, and I will say that, you know, the, on top of the whole thing with the rules, having rules, if once you establish the rules, it's very important that you respect the audience, right? It's like you don't necessarily have to listen to the audience, but respect the audience that if you set up these rules, if you said that there is no such thing as time travel in your show, and you go through half a season of time travel in the very next episode, it's like time travel, and it, but you don't explain it, you know, it's like you're doing a disservice. But if you find a way to accept, well, oh, actually we were wrong, and there actually time travel does exist, and the characters have to figure it out the hard way, yeah. that's something, you, you know, so that I think that's also very important. It does come back to a character place, which is something I wanted to ask you about, say, I don't know how much you can talk about Magic the Gathering, but are there characters in a card deck? What did you, what, would you, what was your starting point for this show? I you mean, have a world, but do you have characters? Yeah, there and there is actually a ridiculous amount of uh, backstory for all of these characters, um, and I can't talk about it very much, but 
the the idea is that we there are certain characters that we're using and I don't even know if I'm allowed to say mm. which ones. <laughs> That's um, fair. But we we are being true to on, the to, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> to to the personalities, if not specifically to the backstory. So if we have let's say for instance we have a pyromancer on our show then that character is going to have the attributes of a pyromancer that have been established in the game they're going to be fiery and impatient and impulsive and all these things so and and because there is 25 26 years of backstory we are going to pull from the story but we're definitely not going to go oh well you know because this character did this she now has uh, uh, plus two, plus two for the, until the end of turn. It's like no, it's you, you're you're gonna play it organically, and you know whatever the the story calls for. You're we're not being slavish to the cards, but we are trying to b- make sure that. I mean, it's funny because in, in the room we did talk about like, can this character do this? And somebody would raise their hand and go like, well, you know, there is a card that is wow. a, a blue card, a blue white card that is a car- is a power that this character could use and there were times where it's like well it's a blue white card so the red character can't use it Interesting. Wow. can we find a red card and that was just us being super nerdy and going like <laughs> the, I think the fans who are hardcore will dig it if yeah. they recognize that we use totally. this this card you're adhering to the rules that they know and love from the game yeah That's and really you cool. know everybody in the room even those uh, people who weren't uh, super fans of the game we uh, everybody by the end of the of the time was a super fan and we That's were great. we would wrap up our days and we would play um, and uh, actually our writer's assistant turned out to be the one that kicked all of our asses <laughs> um, but we would play at the end of the game and and so the rules of the of the card game informed sort of the 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 flavor of the show but not necessarily the story it's interesting did you want to jump in? Just, it's super cool because the, the like a game mechanic and a story mechanic aren't necessarily the same thing, but yeah. they can they, they can overlap, and that's the I think it's going to be the amazing the challenge and the exciting part of the show is to see how those things do come together in a way that's available to not just people who understand the game mechanics so well that they get into the backstory of the cards, like for example my 14 year old at home. Right. Um, but but also I was just thinking as you said it, like Italo Calvino wrote a whole novel that was just him doing tarot decks. That's right. Right? Like he unfolded tarot cards yeah. and wrote a narrative based on those. So there's some precedent for adapting a game, sure. a, game a, a magical game mechanic right. into a narrative arc. Also, also I have no idea what you guys are talking about right now. <laughs> oh, Chris, but Chris, I'm let me. Chris, it's like the Lego movie. Oh, okay. <laughs> Got it. Shouldn't have worked. Absolutely. Thanks. Next question. So there's a card about Janice Joplin's dental floss, um, and it has <laughs> okay, superpowers. All right, cool. So. So, uh, how do you balance world building and building your magic system with your plot? And like, when you when do you really switch focus between the two? Um, I'm going to give this to Kieran first, and I'd love for you to speak to the Wicked and the Divine, if you could. Um, the thing about Wicked and Divine, of course, it's I can't say that. That's a, none of you have read it. It's enormously spoilery. Uh, <laughs> do, you, are you, do you want to talk about the last issue? Yeah, I mean, Wicked and Divine is a book I've been doing for like five years with Jamie McKelvey. And the whole thing is structured upon these ideas of like these gods incarnating in uh, young people's bodies every 90 years for human history. And they live and they die in two years. So it's about art, life and death. So you kind of have these really set rules. And then the entire story is about a deconstruction of each rule. 
In other words, okay, what what do you, what what does the concept of rules mean? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and that's kind of like, anyways, what do you, which one of these rules are true? Which ones are false? How are they true? What is nuance? You know, how, you know, and the, and the, the whole structure of Wiktiv is kind of every every single way that you can be deceived, the story does to you. Okay, all the ones right, I can, but, so you, what I can think of anyway. You're constantly changing the rules yeah. on the audience, theoretically, but also on some of the characters. Yeah, it's much like you're, you're going it through, that's the emotional journey, and that's why I, I hope people don't feel they're cheated. No. It's basically a load of people who are, you know, feeling the elephant. You know, that, you know the story about there, is it, it's a snake, you know, it's a wall, or whatever. You know, the whole thing is, your people are assuming what's really going on based upon the tiny bits they can see, and that's kind of the... And that's what kind of came together. It's like both, you know, the theme of the book is this, is how we actually build stories out of pieces and often deceive ourselves. Mm-hmm. And that becomes both the world building and the character. So that's like the journey. So it's kind of like there's um, the Metroid choice behind all those things, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think to, uh, to sort of condense that and answer the question, it's everything has to work together, mm-hmm. right? Like that's, that's what storytelling in a big world is. Uh, I want to make sure we get to a few more of your questions. Go ahead. Um, what are some of your uh, biggest strengths as writers, like, are you better at world building than dialogue or character arcs? And how did you use that to uh, kind of get yourself in the writer's room, like make yourself stand out? Hmm. Writers love talking about their strengths. <laughs> I'm good at everything. I am a jack of all, right, Dingus? What's, 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 what's I, I'm really good at everything. Oh, you, were, you were my boss, right? Oh, you yeah, can, you're good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. See? Uh, Jenny, you keep winding up in these powerhouse rooms. Uh. <laughs> What do you think that your what do you see as your strength in the room? What do you think when you get hired for a show you're being brought in for? Um, much like Jose, I'm good at everything, but uh, now uh, I I guess it's sort of my calling card is I'm very strong with character. Mm-hmm. So because I feel like all stories spring from character, and to relate it to this conversation, any sort of magical world or magical rules or world building has to relate to character. Like if your magical rules can. Um, sort of illuminate something about your character, your character informs those rules, that's sort of the ideal because otherwise it's just oh, this happens, but if it happens because you know, this person is closed off to the world so their power has something to do with that you know, like The Incredibles is sort of a really good example of that, (laughs) actually, like all their powers relate to sort of their struggle Um, so yeah, so I would say character and just sort of building that in and then kind of spinning off from there, and I'm also good at dialogue can I ask you a question? Uh, you're obviously a super nerd, um, and but you've written on... That's a compliment. Me? Yeah, you. Oh, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but you've obviously written on some of the most uh, grounded, dramatic shows in recent TV history. Did you find that you had to, like, quash your nerdiness, or did, was it useful to have it, to, to have a brain that's wired that way? What was your experience writing on those shows? Um, well, on Breaking Bad, that room was filled with nerds. Um, <laughs> Vince is a huge nerd, Peter Gould, huge nerds, um, Tom Schnau. So, like, we were all fairly nerdy. Um, it was more, I feel like it just sort of, I feel like it lets, if you're into that stuff, your imagination is sort of a little more open to a non-traditional sort of story, but, like, the challenge is finding grounded ways to do it, which is, I think, the best kind of fantasy and sci-fi actually does. Um, but what it would do is it would allow us to do things like enhanced character like we have a whole thing in Breaking Bad where the guys are like high and they're talking about the transporter mechanics or something on Star Trek yeah and that just I mean like Peter Gould and I started talking about that in the room and like Vince just thought it was the funniest thing and so he was like let's put it on the show so you know I I feel like it I feel like 
because I approach genre from a grounded place already, like it, it didn't feel like too too much of a change. But it also because I love genre and it's so imaginative, it allowed mm-hmm. it allows you to kind of look at it as more than just like mm-hmm. he sells meth and he's really you know. Did you feel angry. that that like because you guys were all so nerdy that it made it more? Cinematic because there's like the stuff with the oh, brothers sure. on their bellies feels like something mm-hmm. that you would see in a genre show for sure. And there was a lot of like, I mean, everything was re- referencing movies and TV yeah. shows and things that we like, whoa, this image and we love this. And is there a way to sort of do that? So, yeah, for sure. Yeah. There's a deep love of the stuff that made us and the stuff we mm-hmm. love, yeah. right? Um, yes, next question. Um, would the panel say that it's easier or harder to make a soft magic system? when you're writing a book or a play. Give us a second. We're going <laughs> to... It's hard to make it work, isn't it? That's the thing. You know, it's easy to do, but people just don't buy into it. <laughs> so you've got to find ways to do basically the magic trick. You know, if you're doing a soft magic system, it's, can you convince people? Mm-hmm. You know, like, does it just feel narratively satisfying? Like, and that's, that's always the thing. As in, like, it's almost like poetry when you start, which is a horrible word to say, I know. <laughs> but like, it just becomes, oh, is, this, is this something magically convincing to people? Mm-hmm. And if not, you, you just, you've messed up, you know. So that's really hard. Yeah. I, I think a thing that helps that is if you create strong and identifiable characters that people connect with, if those characters believe what's going on is real, then I think people will go on that journey with the characters. In, in story, that the, the, in the yes. story, the characters, if you can make them manifest how deeply yes. they believe what's happening, then exactly. you, people connect with a character. That's cool. That character, as far as they're concerned, this is all really happening. I think it makes it easier for people to go on that ride and, and sort of believe as well. Yeah, I think that's a good point. All right, we're going to fly through these next bunch of questions because I want to get to them, um, and we have about seven minutes, so go. Okay, um, when you guys are world building, uh, this is like for characters questions. Um, do you prefer to have characters that are fully enabled with magic, like magic on magic, Harry Potter style, or do you prefer more some along the lines of Robert E. Howard, where Conan is totally screwed against magic, <laughs> uh, like Lovecraft also, the gods have magic, you don't, Great. or do you want to kind of cross the barriers a little bit like supernatural? Sam and Dean can do it, but they choose not. I want to see that magic on magic. Mm. <laughs> Next question. <laughs> I mean, I feel like part of the trick is um, you, if your characters are powerful, they need to have weaknesses. Yeah. Um, and whatever powers you give them, whether, whether you want to make them super powerful or whether you want to make them Conan, who's uh, ostensibly just a man, um, Whatever, however, their super has to speak to their character and their arc and their journey. So, a, py- a pyromancer in Magic: The Gathering, for instance, would have a journey that relates to that power. So, is it overcoming uh, the the impatient, fiery nature, or is it about embracing it? It's so. The, whether a character is magically endowed or not is less relevant than. How does that inform who they are as a human being? Right. And magic can't be the solution for everything, right? Right. Like, you have to have those parameters. Sometimes it's the problem. Go ahead. This will be our last question. How do you feel about magic having consequences? Does it always have to have a consequence, even if it's not really blatant? Magic comes with a price. Remember that on Once Upon a Time? Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) There should be stakes for everything. And 
And, and like Ben was saying, as long as it's not the solution to every problem, but that it creates either a diversion or a new, new problem for your character to deal with, consequences are fantastic and bad consequences even better. I, I think magic without consequences is fairly boring because then you're just like throwing fireballs at each other and there's nothing to result from that except that you're just... And that's, that's some of the problem that you run into. The challenge of some media is that you overpower your characters to a point that there seems to be no consequence for the use of magic. So typically, I think you have to balance the level of magic with the consequence. So I would say the more magic that somebody has, the higher the consequences of yeah. using it. I think that's a great answer. All right, I'm going to very quickly, we're going to fly down the line starting at the end with Kieran. Tell us something you are loving right now, a television show, a comic, a movie. What have you watched lately that you want to recommend to people? Oh, everyone's probably watched Fleabag, but like I'm, I'm so into Fleabag, it's scary. Um, yeah, it's a good answer. Yeah. Um, I am currently reading a book that I'm loving called City of Lost Fortunes mm -hmm. by Brian Camp. Great. What Can you give us a one sentence about it? Um, it's kind of uh, less crackhead American gods in New Orleans. <laughs> I mean, Derek. I'm reading a book called Fortune of Lost Cities, and it's pretty... No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, you know, as far as I'm obsessed, and I just love it, and I love that there's an actual cafe is the good place. Uh, it is oh, just, man. Uh, and, and I'm really sad that it's coming to an end, but all good things must come to an end, right? And so I love that. Uh, Fleabag, and then there's a show called Years and Years. Oh, it's so good. Is, yeah. It's good, but it's so disturbing. Yeah. <laughs> it's Jenny. a little too close to home. Um, as with everybody, Fleabag, but uh, What We Do in the Shadows. Oh, God. The, yeah. It's so funny, you guys. It's just like every episode gets better. Yeah. <laughs> uh, HBO's Barry. Uh, and then for more laughs, Chernobyl was good. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, um, City on a Hill is a show on Showtime that I'm watching that I like a lot. Great, Adam. Uh, I got a book called The Half-Made World by Felix Gilman, which is a sort of uh, mystical American retelling of the American West with demon-possessed guns and demon-possessed trains. Oh, cool. It's amazing. Um, and then the TV show Jet with Carla Gugino is pretty great. It's very pulpy, but it's real fun. Nice. Great. Um, I, I was going to say a book, uh, Magic for Liars by Sarah Gailey. It yeah. is um, about a woman who's investigating a murder at a magic school, but she does not have magic powers. Um, so actually the way the magic system is dealt with in that book is very interesting because it's from her point of view. So she doesn't necessarily know how everything works, but the people who do the magic and are at the school know how. So it's just kind of like an interesting juxtaposition. Right, check it out. Sean? We've been deep diving so hard into Star Trek. I don't know what we're doing. Um, uh, uh, good Omens. We ran through Good Omens. And I may go through it again because uh, it's so good. I love it. And uh, anything Terry, I'm at Terry Prashett. Anything uh, Sally Rainwright? I don't know why that's Gentleman Jack, Gentleman Jack Happy Valley, yeah. those good sort answers. of shows. Yes. Yeah. Great. Thank you all so much for being here today. Please enjoy the rest of your con. Forever Dog. This has been a Forever Dog production. 
Executive produced by Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. Engineered by Chelsea Jacobson and mastered by Anna Rubinova. For more original podcasts, please visit foreverdogpodcast.com and subscribe to our shows on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Keep up with the latest Forever Dog news by following us on Twitter and Instagram at Forever Dog Team and liking our page on Facebook. (coughs) Meow. <coughs>